Hello, everyone, and welcome to That Startup Show. I'm Ray Johnston, and this is my co-host, Benjamin Law. Co-host? Oh, thank God, I thought maybe this was a date. No, Ben, we're hosting a show. All right, I just assumed this was just what straight relationships were like. You just get a bunch of people together, and they applaud your traditional lifestyle. Close. <laughs> Tonight, we'll be getting in touch with our bodies, but possibly via email, because we're talking body tech, health tech, biotech, and med tech, and just maybe we're going to find out what it means to be human. We'll be asking questions like, is it ethical to clone yourself? And is it ethical if you're only doing it so you have someone to handle the accounts? <laughs> My favourite piece of health tech is a diet app that recognises the food you're eating because sometimes I don't even know what the things are that I've cooked. And I'm like, should pasta be fizzy? No. Um, how do you feel about LV, a pelvic floor exercise device that gives you points for squeezing at the right time? That's right, it's like Guitar Hero for your genitals. Look, Ben, well, when I was a kid, if you wanted Guitar Hero for your genitals, you had to get out there and play Guitar Hero with your genitals. Ah, the good old days. <laughs> but this field, it even includes genetic engineering. What do you think of designer babies, Ben? Well, I think their berets are very cute, but their stubby arms can't reach the drawing board. <laughs> Thanks, I'll be here all series. All right. What about the company Darwin Life that's offering mothers the chance to have a child with three genetic parents? I don't know how I feel about leaving DNA mixing in the hand of some startup company. Yeah, I reckon it's much better to leave it to drunk teenagers in station wagons in paddocks. <laughs> I'm a Queenslander and that's our long-standing tradition. <laughs> well, we're obviously getting to the bottom of a lot of big stuff already, but there's plenty more to discuss. I find that very hard to believe. If you want to join in the conversation or complain about Ben's designer baby joke, <laughs> you can do it by tweeting us at TSU Show or using the hashtag that startup show. Our first panellist is a global health tech entrepreneur and has been ranked one of the top 50 Australia and New Zealand women in tech. She speaks five Asian languages, making her a quintuple threat to becoming my new hero. She's the co-founder of global health platform HealthKick that's transforming healthcare for practitioners and patients in 50 countries. Please welcome Alison Hardacre. Our second guest is a human-centred designer and academic working at the Nexus of Design, Health and Technology. She's made swallowable devices to detect disease and biosignal sensing emergency jewellery, meaning your fashion choices could actually send a call for help as opposed to just being a cry for help. <laughs> she has most recently designed FACET, the world's first modular hearing aid, which has won more awards than we can name. Please welcome Leah Heiss. Team, we often ask if technology is going to change what it means to be human, but has it already and how? 
Um, I think it already has. Uh, you know, you look back at what um, diseases existed 50 years ago. I mean, the smallpox injection was technology. Um, I don't know anybody who's had smallpox. Um, in 20 years' time, people won't have heard of chickenpox, for example. And now that technology has moved from biotech into medtech, into facet, for example, mm -hmm. um, as well as into things that um, people are doing with healthcare technology as well. Leah, tell us, <laughs> tell us more about facet. Like, what was the original kernel of the idea and how did you develop it? Uh, so it's the world's first self-fit modular hearing aid, which means it's a hearing aid that enables people that have tactile insensitivity or arthritis to change their own batteries. And that doesn't sound like a huge deal for lots of people, but if you can't change your own batteries, then you have to wait for many days sometimes until someone comes to change them for you, which means being deaf for the intervening days. We're going to talk more about those issues, but for now we're going to play a game called unintended side effects where we all take expired medication I found at the back of my grandma's medicine cabinet. <laughs> no, Ben, it's the other game. OK, I may need, may need to call an ambulance. <laughs> Look, we all know that occasionally the time comes when your business has to pivot. So we're going to give you the name of either a product or a company yep. and you're going to tell us what they did before their pivot. So let's test our <laughs> buzzers. Alison. Oh, yeah. Nice. Now, first up, the company that became Twitter started life as what? Triple zero. Triple zero? Yeah. Electronic version triple zero online global version wow. and then they realised that people might die because that's the most important consideration in healthcare technology and it became Twitter and it became all about cat videos. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> does, that, does that fly with your interpretation? Yeah. <laughs> I think that's amazing. <laughs> I, was, I was just sort of ticking over and I was thinking accounting, no, 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 but triple zero sounds Obviously. right to me. Yep. Oh. So it started off saving lives, whereas now you log on and you just want to die. No. <laughs> it started life as a network called Odeo, where people could find and subscribe to podcasts. Brilliant. Probably should have stayed that way. <laughs> Next up, Viagra, which I think we all know. But what was its original purpose? Uh, something to help children with ADHD in the playground. Wow, that has been a really interesting <laughs> testing ground. There we go. Scary stuff. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to go serious this time. I think it's about um, uh, pumping more blood to the heart. So Ooh. it's life-saving as opposed to sex life-saving. Very yes. close. It was a heart medication to treat angina, but once Pfizer realised it could cure erectile dysfunction, they saw the potential for, we're going to call it growth in other areas. <laughs> Next question. Magic, an on-demand personal assistant that will not do anything that's not illegal. That will do anything that's not illegal. <laughs> I was going to say. What did they start out as? Accounting software. <laughs> Things usually do before they become sentient and kill us all. That's true. I'm going with accounting software too. I mean, what more could you need in life? Magic actually entered Y Combinator as a connected blood pressure monitor app called Betia. Mm. There you go. Moving on, the chainsaw, also known as the reason why lumberjacks give you a high four. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> what was the chainsaw originally designed to do? Um, it was actually invented in France. 
and it was designed to kill people in the French Revolution. Oh, wow. 1789, that kind of time frame. I've played frame. that video game. Haven't <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we all? Any ideas? No, I'm sorry, I'm passing this time. <laughs> it was actually invented to cut through bone. The osteome was a hand-cranked chainsaw developed for surgery in 1830 by Bernhard Heine. The chainsaw, chainsaw rather would go on to have starring roles in movies such as Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Pinocchio to Geppetto's Revenge. <laughs> and finally, Instagram, the company that created the need for the Hashtag no filter picture. The company that created a lot of interesting filters and some surprisingly trendy baby names like Amaro, Kelvin, Sierra, and Xpro2. <laughs> what did it begin as? Um, annotatable body charts for doctors so that they can mark where um, as somebody has a condition. We've just been on Instagram together yeah. speaking yeah. Cantonese. Okay, so that's this right, is... that's right. Check it out. It's my yeah. story. That okay. is surprisingly, absolutely. Incorrect. It was originally <laughs> Bourbon, a complicated location-based app similar to Foursquare. Users really only liked the photo-sharing function and single-handedly changed the reason people bought dogs, had kids and ate food. <laughs> so we're here with Alison and Leah, two absolute body tech forces, and we're going to pick their brains. And me the digital brain fork. Um, Leah, the world of Body tech is vast, there's health, there's medical, there's biotech. How is our technology changing our relationship to our bodies right now? So it's a really interesting question that really has two prongs. Mm -hmm. And the first is like, how do you differentiate between health tech, biotech and med tech? And we've discussed this earlier that um, it's pretty hard to do that, but I mean, in layman's terms, the way that I think about these are that health tech is really consumer, fast moving consumer tech health tech products that we're using in the home and on the body. Um, med tech is really about diagnostic drug delivery and, um, and other types of products that we're using either in clinical settings or the home. And bio is about biomolecular innovation and packaging it right. up for... And within those silos, I imagine there's a lot of overlap, is there's that right? There's heaps of yeah. overlap, yeah. Um, and in terms of how is it changing our bodies, I mean, I'd like to say that actually we have had extended bodies and extended minds since we've had the abacus. Mm -hmm. um, so we're scaffolding tech, mm -hmm. but... You know, we're yet to see what it's actually doing to our plastic brains. Right. Yeah. So when you're talking about the abacus, you mean yeah. there has been technology that has augmented how our brains work, how yep. we extend memory, how we extend language and function and all that stuff. That's yes. been there for a long, long time. Yes. But with the pace of change now, what we're not really across or what we don't really know is the full extent of which it's starting to be, in, you know, starting to augment the brain and change the, the plastic brain. Alison, health costs are rising all over the world. How can body-related technology help cure this problem? Sure. I mean, health costs grow at two times CPI. Um, which is, means that there's a significant burden on um, governments and on taxpayers. But more importantly, it means that people aren't getting access to the healthcare that they need. Um, and so it's actually a question of efficiency in the whole healthcare system. Um, and it's such a fragmented market. So GPs, for example, most of us have seen a GP uh, this year. GPs, most are in sole or small practice. Um, and so they're having to do a lot and they're not getting efficiencies. Um, and we've looked at it and we found that with efficiencies, they can get back an hour a day. The biggest issue in healthcare is actually a structural one. 
that doctors don't need more patients, but patients need more doctors. Um, and so if you can make practitioners more efficient um, in the way they practice, they can treat more patients, which means that people can get better health care. And part of that has been that there's been a, a really strong growth in medical devices so people can run their own health care. Um, and that's fantastic. And it's, uh, we were talking before about segmentation of patients. There's a group called the Worried Well, which is what a lot of people are. It's the, oh, I'd just like to lose a few kilos or, you know, become fitter, etc. It's your Strava app. But there's a whole lot of people out there that deal with very complex conditions and that's where a lot of the costs are. And I think by providing technology for them to manage their own healthcare, they don't need to rely on the health system and doctors so much and can be in control of their own healthcare. So it's a really exciting time to be living, um, but at the same time it does require a lot of regulation to ensure that uh, the right innovations are getting out there um, and most importantly um, companies that are building innovations need to be thinking about how they're distributing those products which is some of the questions we've been asking um, the pitchers tonight. Leah, Alison, we were talking about ways to augment the body. I mean, the abacus mm. is one kind of technology. We've seen a very, very different example of augmenting the body tonight by implanting a chip. This is a slight tangent, but how do we feel about people doing things like this? Okay, so that's apparently real, and that's called bagelizing. It's all the rage in Japan, but when I say all the rage, I'm not sure it's mainstream, but it's happening. How do we feel about this? How should we feel about that kind of body augmentation? Mm, interesting. So um, when we think about augmenting the body, there's a really interesting debate that's going on about that we can we can augment the body up to normal, but not mm. beyond normal. And so if you have a disability, it's okay that you're brought up to normal and you get some, you know, fantastic, if you have no legs, you get some fantastic, you know, um, carbon fibre legs. Mm -hmm. But if you become superhuman, then you're disqualified from races because you're better than the other humans. Um, and so this type of thing here is a really interesting bagelizing or, you know, um, prosthetic horns or whatever those things might be, um, they're, they're looking at this sort of augmentation as, as a fashion statement, yep. you know, as, as I... Um, it's as not a health benefit as such, but for them an aesthetic yeah. benefit. I guess that's why they're doing it. It could be about it. aesthetics and it can also be about identifying with subcultures. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, it's a really interesting area to keep an eye on. The, the area that is very interesting is if you start to cross those things over. So if the bagel starts to be a drug delivery device, I mean, oh. you know, there's some interesting <laughs> opportunities there. Right, or it becomes, I don't know, like a 4G network that yeah. you carry around with yourself. Hey, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, from my perspective... Um, you know, that looked to be, um, and no, I'm no fashion expert, but that looked to be, you know, a fashion statement rather than, you know, anything to do with, you know, medical innovation, for example. And, you know, I think over time people are doing a lot more things that w it's very hard to see what the purpose is of it. But at the same time, you know, as Leah was saying, there's now so many um, devices um, and mobility devices, for example, that can help people with disabilities. And I used to be on the board of um, an organisation uh, for people with disabilities. And I think we should be talking to people with disabilities about what they want. We don't know what it is to live that life and to walk in those shoes. And if there's a technology that can make their lives so much easier, so much more independent, so that they're not the disabled person, mm -hmm. they're John, who happens to have a disability, then I don't think we should be judging them for that. And I think, you know, it's one of the wonders of the age that we live in that there are so many opportunities um, and technology is speeding things up 
so that we can get the right technologies, the right devices out to the right people, be that in Australia, be that in Laos or, or Africa. Um, and I think that's what it's about. It's about making people's lives better, even if that means putting a bagel on your head. Yeah. <laughs> So let's go a step further. What about gene modification tech? Can we just build ourselves better, stronger, faster, CRISPR? Could you take a moment to explain a little bit to our audience about what CRISPR is and what it might mean for us? It's, it's about, as I understand, it's about the DNA and removing parts of the DNA that, um, or splicing them off um, so that they don't act. Um, and that means people's lives are going to be a lot better. And again, it gets back to the, the idea that we live in this world where that's possible now. Um, and I think, you know, if we were talking 30 or 40 years ago about some of the technologies that were available, people were fearful of that. Mm -hmm. um, just as people are fearful now. Um, and there will be mistakes in yeah. technology, um, but there will be amazing innovations. I think the key thing, though, when you look at health tech or body tech, is that people's lives are affected. If we're looking at um, a fintech innovation, it's just their, yes. their money. This is their life, this is their the livelihood. The much higher. That's exactly right. Um, and that means that we do need to be having much more nuanced conversations about, yeah. about this area. I mean, when we're talking yeah. about mistakes, I mean, how has the body tech sector been scarred by something like the Theranos scandal and what happened there? Yeah. Uh, and what's the fastest way to heal from something like that? Maybe some sort of collagen gel. Yeah, <laughs> it's interesting. Like, even just thinking about, so the CRISPR debate and the ethics around CRISPR, come back to this idea of what is normal. And it's, it's seen as okay to be able to trim the genes that are impacting on people and giving them disabilities mm. or illnesses, but not to trim the ones that give you a different kind of hair colour or eye sure. colour, whatever, whatever might be. So that's an interesting debate. All development is trial and error, but like, as you say, Alison, the, the errors have high stakes. So do. how yeah. do you proceed forward in a world where, where you have to get mistakes done, but yeah. mistakes can really cost people their quality of life or perhaps their life. They can indeed. And I think, you know, the medical trials process has pros and cons. Obviously, it has to be incredibly rigorous to ensure that when these med techs and health techs are distributed to the world and to people that they don't have an adverse impact mm -hmm. on quality of life. The counter to that is that it can take seven to 10 years for a tech to go from idea through to market. And so you have that period of time where people's lives can actually- They miss out. Yeah, that can be degenerating over time. So yeah, I mean, we have an imperfect system. Mm. I think um, your, your point raises the issue of why health technology um, and the health sector is so difficult to innovate in. Mm. Um, people talk about the hockey stick, go small dip, then up. Well, in healthcare, it's a long, hockey stick lying down. There's a lot of development before you get that uptick. Um, and that's it's because patient safety is the most important thing. Um, and that has to be at the heart of everything. It means you can't just whip out an MVP, for example. You have to make sure that it's got much more value, um, which means it's much more complex, which means that there's less money that has been invested in this space over time. That's now changing, fortunately, um, but it's very difficult to build uh, an innovation because it's also hard to get distribution as well. You mentioned before about Theranos, and I've just read the book um, called Bad Blood about it. Um, and what fascinated me was not so much the, the health issues around it, but more that there were signs throughout that company's um, time that this was not a company that you wanted to be associated with, that there was a lot of 
possibly fraud, allegedly, um, a lot of really difficult problems around management. And yet that wasn't how it was portrayed in the media. That wasn't how the media talked about it. And that wasn't how startups in, in talked about it at all. Um, and it was seen as the, the company that we should all be emulating. And yet this came out and it came out and it you know, crashed down the house of cards. I think that could happen in so many sectors. Um, and I think that's more about startup culture and um, you know, everybody running around saying, oh, I'm killing it and then the company dies two weeks later. You know, that's not what it's about. It's about building businesses and services that have real impact on society. And if you do that, um, that's how you build a business that changes the world. And it's a business that changes the world. And that was my issue with Theranos. So, Leah, there are wearables now whose mission it is to monitor stress levels, but I want to know, is the answer to stress really more devices? <laughs> I would say no. Yeah, a bit of yoga, a bit of meditation might do a better job. Um, it really comes back to, again, are devices the answer to these these big issues. And, and we've been having conversations about there's this, uh, there's really a sort of a focus on um, accelerators and building more devices and doing it quickly and not this show, but you know that the idea of do a pitch and get it to market quickly. And, and what's actually happening, particularly in sectors like aged care, is that you've got cupboards full of devices that no one uses because there is very little engagement with end users who are dealing with that issue. Mm. And so I think, you know, we can design more wearables, we can make them look better, but we need to spend a whole lot more time with people to understand the human condition of stress and why are they stressed. And, and maybe there's four or five different approaches to managing that stress as opposed to just getting another device. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you've been having conversations with Fitbit yeah. that have been quite interesting. Yeah, they've described themselves to me as a data collection company rather than a, oh, a fitness wearables company. And it makes me wonder, you know, does the benefits that this huge data pool that Fitbit has, you know, the benefits that might have for the public or, you know, the greater good, does that outweigh our right to privacy and the risks associated sure. with that? Is it a cause for concern? I think the most important thing is about being open and obtaining consent for that use of that data. Um, I think data in this space is really powerful. I mean, um, organisations that uh, have said that health data has more power to change lives than drug innovations alone. Um, I know with our software, um, we can see where there are practitioner shortages, for example. We can start to see where there, is, there are disease clusters. So that data is really powerful. Um, but it's also um, important to use it in the right way. Um, and that's to make healthcare better. Mm. And that's to make patient lives better. Um, and it's not to line the pockets of others outside of that space. Mm. So getting back to your question about Fitbit, yes, they're right. It, wouldn't it be amazing if Fitbit, Fitbit could see that you are X age, X gender, and that you are having difficulty, I don't know, um, in your spin class, for example. Um, and then it knew that other people who met that demographic improved in a certain way. And then you could take that 
that wide knowledge that exists and improve your own life, not just necessarily in a spin class, but imagine if that were diabetes or, or something that is really potentially life debilitating. Um, it has so much power. I think, though, that we're at the start of a conversation about health data, and it's a really nuanced conversation, um, but it's most, the most important thing is to be very open about all of that mm. and to protect patient identity yeah. in doing yeah. so. Now, we're talking about health data, but what yeah. about genetic data? What are the implications of a company owning our genetic information? Like, do we yeah. own our own genome? Tongue twister for you there. Well done. Oh, thank, mm, thank you. you. Yeah. <laughs> it's a really interesting space because it is, again, about sort of augmenting and it's going beyond the skin of the body. And we, we are already beyond the skin of the body. And all of these technologies are enabling us to inhabit spaces that we've never inhabited before. But again, this sort of data is quite a new onion skin to that to that set of um, complex problems um, and I think that we probably don't own all of our data and that we haven't for a while but we haven't realized it and we haven't really thought about the implications of it but the genetic when we're talking about genetics we're talking about ourselves like the map of who we are like if, if a company accesses that are we allowed to own that? I mean, we're already volunteering our DNA when we do, like, ancestry kits and things mm. like that. If someone makes a clone of us, mm. who owns the clone? Well, there's, there's criminal law issues involved with that because I, I remember um, reading about um, serial killer in California who was caught because his relatives had used a service such as, like 23andMe, or not yeah. that quite, yeah, to, mm. to work out, um, to see who what they, their diseases were, but that also meant that um, his, the DNA of the killer could be linked up to, to those relatives of his. So we're really not aware of all of the implications of our data. And, you know, personally, I think the conversations over the last three or four years, three or four months in particular about Facebook, et cetera, as well as other health data um, and data more generally have been fantastic because we need to have these conversations. Um, it is really important for people to understand um, the, p the potential for data, uh, but also how important it is for your identity to not be linked to that. Mm. So Can I say something ridiculous here? Yes, go through. Right. Here's a safe well, space. Okay. So the idea that our DNA is our DNA, mm. um, every year we shared about 4.3 kilos of skin cells. So our DNA is distributed, you know, across Melbourne, across the world. So we do not end at the boundary here. So it's really interesting when you start to think about... We're already porous. <laughs> We're already porous. <laughs> wow. You and I are intermingling. Well, it's interesting. Like, you look at the BRCA1 gene. Um, which is a gene about breast cancer. Um, and the company that discovered that then sought to patent it. Um, and then it meant that people who happened to have that gene had something that legally wasn't theirs in their own body and yet they were born with that. And then there becomes the issue yeah. of how do you encourage innovation? Because you need people to be able to protect their own innovation um, in order to encourage innovation so that people with the BRCA1 gene can actually be treated um, in a way so that it doesn't cause breast cancer or it doesn't kill them. And so it's an interesting conundrum. So given the concerns about privacy, and, but also, you know, the advertised benefits of public health information sharing, I wanted to ask you both a bit of a personal question here. Will you be opting in or out of my health record? And you can tell us. It's not like you're on TV. <laughs> <laughs> and I think I'll, I'll opt in. 
Yeah, I believe in um, that sense that if we collectively assimilate all of this knowledge and learning, that some good will come from that. And also, I'm, I'm just hopeless with paperwork. And I think if I can actually go here, there and everywhere and see a doctor and they can instantly access my record, I'm actually quite OK with You're that. You're not worried about that data being breached? Um, I'd, I'd be interested to see the algorithms as well <laughs> behind it. But I think, you know, there, there's going to have to be a level of trust. There's also going to have to be a level of uptake to make it work. And I think I'm going to be on the uptake side. Right. I um, will be opting in. Personally, um, I, like Leah, know the value of health data. Um, I don't have any particular conditions, but if, for example, I had diabetes, to actually effectively manage my diabetes, I'd be having to complete 140 minutes of data entry a day. Um, and so health devices help to solve that. But I'd also be having to deal with a GP, a nephrologist, a diabetes educator, um, as well as other health practitioners, and repeating my stories over and over again. If my health record develops in the way that it should, which is to be a full single patient record system, I think it really has so much potential for people with conditions. I don't have any conditions like that, but you know, I may in 20, 30 years time, and I want there to be that longevity of health data so that they can see if there were any signs early enough. And that's not just for my own benefit, that's for the benefit of medical science. Um, you know, we're, this is a very topical conversation. Um, and a couple of days ago, the law, the, um, the Minister Hunt announced that the law is going to be changed so that health data can only be accessed by police and the ATO with a, with a warrant. Mm. Thank God. Um, when I read that last week that that was not the case, mm. and I work in this space and I did not know that. Yes, yes there's a policy, but I did not know um, that that was not enshrined in legislation. I was concerned, but at the same time I was very impressed that there was such an early response to that concern being raised. Mm. Now those concerns are alleviated? For me, yes. For you. Who, OK, we made a terrible joke about designer babies before, <laughs> but say, you know, we... we venture further into that realm of making designer babies, who owns the IP of that baby? The parents, the company responsible for making that baby, the baby? Yeah, it's interesting too. And, you know, <laughs> from, a, from an intellectual property perspective, you know, can we put a design registration on that baby? Mm. You know, can we patent the baby? Can we trademark the baby? Can we trademark the baby? <laughs> like, what, what are we talking in terms of mm. that sort of intellectual property? Um, because I guess realistically, it depends what happens in the laboratory and what kind of uh, protections the laboratory has on its intellectual, pro on, mm. or, you know, on its processes. So we have process as well as outcome, which I think is really kind of interesting. And to then discuss. what complicates this discussion is yeah. we're talking about ethical boundaries, but we're developing these technologies in different jurisdictions with different yeah. laws and yeah. different ethical values. And then what if one of them has that gene that's already been patented? Yeah. <laughs> well, until science gives us immortality, making a mockery of time itself, that is all we have time for. So please thank the geniuses on our panel tonight, Alison Hardacre and Leah Heiss. Next week, we talk co-founders, culture shocks and robots and find out how long we have until an android can present that startup show. You didn't know? <laughs> See you on the Scrap Heap, everyone. Yeah.